Hello, and welcome back to Get the Let Out with Dr. Chuck Stead. Uh, we started talking last week. Uh, I guess we gave a little bit further of a description of uh, Cindy's dwelling and the meaning behind it and the meaning behind uh, the way that some of the indigenous communities view animals. Uh, and it was a very, very interesting conversation. What are we going to talk about this week, Chuck? Well, I'm going to hone in on white man's Indian, on the perception of what nativism is in popular culture, and then take it a little deeper than that. Okay. <laughs> Let's take it away. So this episode is called White Man's Indian. In my Ramapo boyhood, there were white men who believed in local native presence, and one in particular who was a good friend of my Uncle Mal's. He often defended the credibility of the Ramapo nation. Mal would argue that the movement was all a ploy for some financial benefit. And Jeff Masters would argue that it was a case of pride, as there was really no financial benefit at all. He would say, when is it financially beneficial to be an Indian? At the time, I did not comprehend why some white people had such strong opinions about Native presence, but over the years, I've come to realize the significance of the white man's Indian being consigned to, well, the reservation system and Warner Brothers animations. To acknowledge Native presence is to acknowledge Native rights. And after the Indian Wars, with the formation of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the BIA, this problem was dealt with in the late 19th century with the institution of the U.S. American Indian Schools such as the Carlisle School in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Here, the final solution to nativism was to take the survivors' children and board them in an institution dedicated to the sole purpose of de-Indianization. So for people like my Uncle Mal, native culture had vanished. Even their stories were anglicized. In 1964, as civil rights was drumming up in the South and the politics of segregation were being challenged, Uncle Mal brought Jeff Masters and a few of us white kids to see a genuine Indian down at the Lafayette Theater in the village of Suffren. This was an attempt on the part of Lafayette to boost attendance for the matinee on the eve of Thanksgiving. The theater was packed, so we sat down in the front row while the whitest Indian we had ever seen dressed in buckskins and wearing a full chief's headdress, such that he resembled a Hollywood Apache, did some rope tricks and blew smoke rings with his cigar, after which John Wayne flashed across the screen shooting Indians. Behind us sat many of the Ramapo families, so we all together watched John Wayne shooting Indians. As the theater emptied out, Jeff Masters suggested that we go visit with a native friend of his, who lived in the next county. Uncle Mal was reluctant, but we begged him, and he gave in. Having just seen the genuine Hollywood Indian and the Wayne film, we were filled with expectations of war paint, buckskin teepees, and eagle feather headdresses. What we drove up to in the late afternoon was an old Airstream trailer on cinder blocks, a yard strewn with debris, and a pack of slobbering mutts. Inside the trailer lived an ancient man, swallowed by his rough clothes and folded into an easy chair. He was introduced as Little Crow, and once we settled in, Jeff asked for the story. 
This old man spoke to us kids directly. He told us of how he, Little Crow, had been taken to the Carlisle American Indian School where his hair was cut short, his traditional clothes were taken from him, and he was punished if he spoke any native tongue. After a year or two, he remained miserable there and often tried to escape but was always returned to the school. Then, one Thanksgiving evening, he was told that a great traditional meal would be served the next day, and he would be expected to be thankful for all the good things that he had. He went to his sleeping quarters upstairs all alone, and he wept as he had nothing in his heart for which he was thankful. The old man told us kids of his sorrow, of his boyhood agony, and then he heard something. There, there was a knocking at the window, uh, like a tapping, and, and, and there was crow, a crow hitting the glass with his beak. And I looked at him, and he said to me, Let me in, little crow, let me in. I opened the window to this crow. He flew about the room, first to the chair, and then to the bed, and then to a school book, where he stayed. He said, Why do you cry, little crow? Why do you cry? I told him, they cut my hair, they took my clothes, they, they changed my words, and I no longer knew who I was. Crow laughed. Ha, 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 shh, Crow, please be quiet. If they hear you, I will be punished. Little Crow, they will not hear me. He stared at my old hair, the hair that I'd had on my head, only it had been cut short. There was some still on the floor, he said. So they took your hair, little crow. But are you just hair? I said I wasn't just hair. Crow looked at my clothes, and he said, So they took your clothes, little crow. But are you just clothes? I said I was not just clothes. And now he looked at my mouth, and he said, So they took your words, little crow. But are you just words? And to this I said, No, I was not just words. And Crow then jumped up and he said, Your hair grows back. You can change your clothes and your words you can learn again. These things are not all that you are, little Crow. But, but, I said to him, But how do I know I am still me? And Crow said to me, Because you hear me. They do not hear me. They know nothing of my world. You, you still hear me. And for that, you can be thankful. And so we asked him if he could still hear Crow. And he said that he could. And he'd heard him just that morning, that very morning, because Crow had told him we would come for the story. <laughs> the stories of the Ramapo represent the changing nature of traditional tales and the difficulty faced by the folklorist and the anthropological community. Oh, we're, we're all in an attempt to track down credible cultural roots. But it is an oral tradition. It defies a particular time and a particular place. The written record, as noted above, is a one-way passage that identifies only one moment in a story's cycle. Oral tradition is a living embodiment of story. As a native teller would say, upon the completion of a story, I'm done with that. And now it is yours. 
done with that. And now it is yours. I passed, I passed the baton. I trust you'll treat it well. Huh? Yeah. We can only hope. Yeah. You know, I, uh, when you started this particular story, you spoke about Mal's perception of the Indian, you know, the indigenous. Why do we go there? Why do you suppose that happens? Is it our nature as the white man simply to disregard other communities? Is it fear? What do you think it is that, that does that? Well, I, I think for, in part, Western civilization has a, a hunger to conquer. And just as we've conquered nature in our, in our mind's eye, we've conquered, conquered rather the, the people of nature. And when those people remind us of their natural relationship to nature, we conquer that too. We are in charge. There is that hubris that is embedded in Western civilization. And because we so idolize technocracy, the technological whim of Western civilization, the idea of a natural relationship, though lovely, though very lovely and very romantic, is, is not marketable. It's not a commodity that we can work with. And I think that's, that's our downfall. That's our weakness. That's our flaw. Because, frankly, if we're going to survive climate change, we're going to need the traditional knowledge of the indigenous world. I mean, we know they're good at surviving because they've been surviving us and we've tried to eliminate them and that hasn't worked. That's, that's the cost, isn't it? Yeah. When, you, when you deny a community its respect, its, its place in society, you deny all the wisdom that comes with that community. And in the case of the indigenous, this is wisdom that came before us, at least in this country. And, and, uh, and that's one thing I do see. I see a people that seem to understand the land and nature better than we do, even today. And they warn us, you know, that we ignore them at our peril, yep. and yet we continue to ignore them. You know, we're all experiencing right now the leading edge of catastrophic climate change. We see it every day. We see it. I mean, the, the hurricanes are not more just more frequent. They are more violent. Yep. Uh, they are powered more by the by the warmth of the ocean. There are numbers of days when the ocean measured a hundred degrees down in, uh, on the lower coast of Florida. Um, this is not sustainable. It cannot continue without without tragedy and yet you know it is so hard to bring us around and these people the indigenous they've been saying this since since we got here they've recognized our lack of respect for the land and for the animals that are inhabiting the land and now we're going to pay a price well you know and here's the sad part we're not going to pay the price our children are going to pay the price and our grandchildren are going to pay the price and yet we still have to argue. You know, look at what just happened uh, in Libya. My God, over 5,000 people have died in floods in Libya. Okay, look at what just happened in Hawaii, on Maui. You know, this is, we're there. It's now. Climate change and, and catastrophe from climate change is happening right now. 
And yet there are still that w- some that will treat it like, you know, well, we're having a bad year, you know, but it'll cycle back next year. I actually have a colleague at Ramapo College who will tell his students that climate change is a natural phenomenon in referencing our current situation, not in referencing climate change historically. You know, Crocodile, the, the, the great volcano, and it had an impact, but that was 200 years ago. Climate change today is anthropogenic, meaning it is human-generated, or at least human-initiated. And, uh, and to think that we have intelligent people who will actually argue the opposite and you know, and come up with that bizarre false equivalency argument. I, I have, I have so many. You know, I'm, I live close to nature. I have so many examples of in my life's narrative thread witnessing climate change, just in terms of animal behavior, just in terms of the plant life. We all talk about invasive species. Nothing encourages invasive species more than climate change, because species that are that are opportunistic, that are non-native to your area are just that, they're opportunistic. If there is the potentiality for them to impregnate your area, that means something has shifted. We always have, uh, for example, we always have a a Japanese knotweed showing up in areas that are disturbed. When we build power lines, Mm -hmm. Japanese knotweed has a tendency to show up. But it's also also inclined to the, the altered weather state in those areas it's inclined to those open areas that then experience what's happening and and japanese knotweed does really well with virulent storms by the way i mean there, there are some plants that will adapt to that uh, i i i kind of don't like the word the phrase invasive species because it it implies a kind of uh home rule for plants and i i think that gets a little xenophobic i kind of don't want to go there i would call them as my my dear uh, friend, the late Paul Tappenden, referred to them. Uh, I would call them introduced species and introduced by any number of means mm-hmm. because invasive in this world of you know constant migration and so forth and immigration and so forth, I think we, we should be a little sensitive to that. But the reality is this stuff is happening yeah. because we have established the opportunity for it to happen. And we don't want to take responsibility for it. In the indigenous world, they take responsibility for everything. They even, in in the indigenous world, will take responsibility for the the mean people who harbor prejudice against them by saying, you're giving them a space in which they can be mean to you. Mm. Do not acknowledge that space. It will have less impact upon you. I mean, (laughs) because, because they're all about reciprocal thinking. Right. You know, like I said in, in a previous episode, you give, you take. You give, you take. You take, you give. You take, you. It's all about that kind of reciprocity. That sensibility of reciprocity yeah. is deeply rooted in the indigenous world, not in the Western world. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I talked about hurricanes and floods and, uh, you know, the fact that there's going to be desperation migration pretty soon. I mean, there has to be. Certainly yeah. in Libya there will be. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, now, they're, they're, you know, they attribute that to dams breaking down. But come on, why are the dams there in the first place? You know, because they're, they're, a, a, they're on the coast of the Mediterranean, I guess. And, yeah. and this is happening. But there's also now malaria in Florida. Yeah. Uh, on a regular basis. Yeah. You know, there are, there are uh, 
certain insects that are moving north that were never here before. Of course, West Nile virus. You know, you've got the woolly adelgia that has pretty much wiped out all the elm tree, uh, all the uh, not the elm trees. I'm trying to remember. Um, you're talking. You're talking about the hemlock. The hemlock, yeah, right? Yeah. Wiped out the hemlocks, and the ash beetle that is. You know, it's it's really it's tragic. Yep. You drive around here, and all these beautiful trees. Well, here, here's dead. one. Here's one for you, Georgia. In the southern portions of Georgia, the peach orchards are drying out, and they're not sustaining. So the peach farmers in the southern portion of the state are converting to orange groves. They're planting orange groves because oranges, which of course the the fruit, uh, the citrus state is Florida. We we know that. They're not doing quite as well down there because of the storms, but because of the heat, they're doing better up into Georgia, where heretofore it was the peach state. The peach state over time, and not we're not talking a long time, may lose the peach, but it will gain the orange. So at least they're adapting the farmers. But what about the orchards in Florida? I mean, you know, there's a point where you're not gaining anything. The, the loss will just keep building up exponentially. And it changes economies. Yeah. It has a widespread effect. Oh, sure. Sure, absolutely. And God knows we've got enough trouble today trying to figure out what are we going to do about AI and how that's going to change economies mm -hmm. and the millions of jobs that mm -hmm. are going to be lost to this uh, new and, and uh, in some ways promising and in other ways extremely, extremely frightening technology. And, and you know, at least from an agrarian standpoint, if we took care of the land, we'd still have the ability to, to sustain ourselves with food, but we're even getting to a place there. Well, the whole reciprocity thing, if we take care of the land, the land takes care of us. Yes, yeah. It's a relationship. Right. And agriculture, and we first learned this lesson at the beginning of the 20th century with the massive ag businesses that were emerging. Agriculture right. needs to infuse itself with that sense of reciprocity as opposed to what it started infusing itself in the 1930s, chemallergy. And then it was called chemallergy. We can always remediate the damage done to the soil by overuse with chemicals, with infusion of various chemicals. There, there is a huge limitation on that. It may have an immediate effect, like even in the 1970s with the Green Revolution, we were talking about that. We came back to that full cycle around, mm -hmm. but it exhausts the soil. And and exhaust the soil. Then that ends up in the dust bowl. And, yeah, and, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Gee, soul of the soil. I'm trying to think of her name. Somebody I knew. A soul of the soil. I don't know if I have the book here, but it's an excellent classic written years ago, and it's just as relevant today. Sure, sure. And the white man's Indian is the one that's been telling the truth all this time. The white man just yep. didn't listen, doesn't want to yep. listen to him. Yep. Another very interesting one. Um, with that, I'm going to wrap up today's, but what are we going to talk about uh, next week? Next week, I believe, is our last in the series. Is our it last not? in the series is called Living the Story. Sort of appropriate to uh, complete this round. I would say Living so. Story. Well, thanks for being with us, folks. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And... Uh, don't miss next week's. It'll be our uh, closing episode. We'll give you some interesting messages at the end of that, too. Okay? Thanks a lot, folks. Bye-bye. And now for a word from our favorite sponsor, 
The Montgomery Book Exchange, your hometown used bookstore, now at our new location at 84 Clinton Street in the heart of the Montgomery, New York Business District. Now, if you've been here before, you'll love your next visit even more because we proudly share our new space with Astoria Hudson, a clothing boutique run by our good friend, Katie. The Montgomery Book Exchange is a place where great books survive the test of time, where you can read a book enjoyed by someone a generation before you. You might even find notes in the margin giving you an insight as to what mattered the most to the previous reader. That's how Montgomery Book Exchange turns a great book into a shared experience. And the Montgomery Book Exchange is known throughout the Hudson Valley and beyond for innovations like their Facebook Live sales or their intimate author readings and book signing experiences. How about their member-driven book club selections and book club talks? And did you know you can get store credits in the form of Montgomery Book Exchange book bucks when you bring your well-loved and gently used books in for a store credit? You can also find your Montgomery Book Exchange friends every first Friday evening at the monthly Handmade Montgomery event, which takes place from 6 to 8 p.m. This is a wonderful event featuring local artisans and hundreds of beautiful handmade items ranging from pottery to jewelry. For more information, just go to the MontgomeryBookExchange.com or call them at 845 764 1787. That's 845 764 1787. There's one more thing. They have a special location at 8 Factory Street dedicated to your young readers. They call it the Montgomery Book Exchange Children's Chapter, and it features a reading garden where your children can discover the joy of reading in a wonderful and stimulating learning environment. Also, at this location, you'll find Miss Claire's Music Cupboard featuring the award-winning research-based Kinder Music Program. The Montgomery Book Exchange Children's Chapter is open Wednesday through Saturday. Check the website for specific class times that match your child's age. You can also contact the Children's Chapter at 845-522-9652. TheMontgomeryBookExchange.com Your hometown used bookstore. You're going to love this place.